You can turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Uh, we will finish Galatians chapter 3 today. If you are new to our church or new to the Bible, that's fine. You'll be able to jump right in with us. Don't worry about it. If you uh, don't have a Bible or don't have an ESV, which is the version we use, feel free to punch in Galatians 3 ESV on your mobile device and follow along that way. Or at any time, uh, it won't offend me, you're welcome to head to the lobby and grab a copy of the Bible. We do keep extras there for you if you want to have it not digitized in front of you. So uh, anytime you can grab a copy of the Bible. So far, uh, in the letter of... Galatians, we have heard an awful lot about what the law, I think the old, uh, uh, first five books of the Old Testament, especially the Ten Commandments, we've heard an awful lot about what the law can't do. It can't justify us before God. It can't secure God's blessings. It can't make us righteous or holy or happy. We have learned quite a lot about what it can't do, contrasted with what faith can do. But at some point, we should be asking, all right, got it. Law can't do all that. So what exactly is its purpose then? Is it like the spleen? Like it had a purpose at some point, but we don't know what it was? Is it just a theological punching bag? Just seems like what it's been so far in Galatians. Paul anticipates that question. After he's hammering on everything the law can't do, he knows somebody is going to ask them, though, why on earth does the law exist? If faith does all the important stuff, all the heavy lifting in Christianity, what exactly does the law do? Well, let's read Paul's answer. Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 19. I'm going to read through the end of the chapter, verse 29. I'll read and then pray. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Very words of God addressed to us this morning. Join me as I ask him to help us understand these words. 
Lord, I ask now that by the power of your Spirit, we would truly understand what the Apostle Paul is teaching us here about how to understand your holy, righteous requirements and how those requirements should factor into how we think about ourselves and how we relate to you. We need to understand this. We need to get this right. And we need your help in order to do so. So give clarity to our minds. Give receptiveness, willingness to receive to our hearts. And help us now understand and apply these words we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, if you can't tell by this point in the service that I love that we get to describe our church as joyful, generous, ordinary neighbors. Uh, It was such an encouragement to us as pastors a few years back. We sat down. This is where these words came from. We sat down and asked each other, what are the big obvious ways we see as the pastors God's grace at work in our fellow church members? What are those? Let's just list them. And then how could we simply and clearly describe them, line them out? And what came out of those discussions are those four words. And those four words, oh, I hope they serve you. I believe they work great as a description of the grace of God at work in you. But you know what those words wouldn't work great as? A law. The four commandments of Sovereign Grace Church put them on the wall. (laughs) Be joyful. Be generous. Be ordinary. Be a neighbor. A set of rules that we're all forced to abide by and then we use to evaluate one another. Just imagine. Play along with me here. I see you after the service and I walk up to you and I say, hey, you aren't being joyful enough. You didn't smile at all. You look like you're barely even awake while we're singing to Jesus. Or how about this? I was reviewing the donation records, which to be clear, the pastors don't do. This is held under lock and key. We have no clue how much you give or who gives what. But let's just say, say, I was reviewing the donation records and your name wasn't on it. Where's the generosity, fella? You even a Christian? Or why the nice clothes? Who are you trying to impress? Chill out. You're ordinary. Get over yourself. Or I served meals to the homeless last week, but you weren't there. Don't you care about your neighbors? Be a neighbor, friend. Haven't you read the parable of the Good Samaritan? Get with the program. Terrible law. Now, I'm assuming those are as painful for you to hear as they were for me to say. And of course, they're exaggerated. But let's face it. Let's face it. Christians are in danger of doing that kind of thing with God's law or with some other kind of law of our own making. We are in danger of drifting into self-righteousness, even though it's not that exaggerated. It has much lesser forms. Every church, every church community is tempted to make up its own laws and standards of behavior that we use to evaluate our own spiritual lives and the health of our church and the lives of others in other churches. We just want a spiritual measuring stick. Because 
we are regularly tempted to use God's law in an unlawful way, in a way that God never intended us to use it. That's what's happening in Galatia. Paul's opponents are using God's law in a way God never intended. They're saying that the keeping of his law is a critical part of salvation. Now, when Paul talks about the law, he's referring primarily to a few things from the Old Testament. Circumcision, the Ten Commandments, the dietary restrictions, and some of the feast days. E- even here, th- these, these guys that were, were taking issue with Paul weren't saying you had to keep the whole law. You just had to keep these certain parts of it. They kind of understood that the coming of Christ changed things. They were disagreeing over what exactly changed. Now, you and I may not be tempted to use uh, those parts of the Old Testament as non-negotiable requirements for, for spiritual life or church life, but we don't really need God's law when we can just make up our own, right? Like what could happen to joyful, generous, ordinary neighbors if we aren't careful, Let me ask you to reflect for just a moment. What's your law? What's yours? What's the list of things that you're obligated to do as a Christian? The list that when you do them, you feel like you're a pretty good person. And when you don't, you feel awful. It's good to have godly biblical standards of behavior. Don't get me wrong. It is good to have godly biblical standards of behavior, but we need to use them in the way God intended. We need to use his law lawfully. And this passage lines out the purpose of God's law for Christians. What role should God's law have in our lives? Three points from our passage that will answer that question, serve as an outline. I will give them to you as we go. What role should God's law have in our lives? Point number one. The law exposes our sinfulness. The law exposes our sinfulness. Verse 19. Why then the law? Here's his first stab at answering that. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Now, the word transgressions means law-breaking. Paul picked that word very carefully. The law was added because of law-breaking. That's his first answer. God's people were already violating his law before he published it. We started that in the Garden of Eden, right, with the tree and the forbidden fruit, and we've just kept it going ever since. We've always been lawbreakers since that moment in the Garden. God published his law for his people so that we could see it, so that we could see that we were breaking it. As, as many have said and written uh, throughout church history, God's law is a mirror for our souls that forces us to look at our sinfulness and acknowledge how serious it is. That's why God published his law in the Ten Commandments, to show us our law-breaking, to bring us under conviction for our sins. And he fills that point out a little bit. If you skip down to verse 22, look there. The scripture, he writes, imprisoned everything under sin. Now, when he says scripture, he is primarily referring to the Old Testament law. And that scripture revealed to us that we were under the power and control of sin. That's the sense he's giving us from the word imprisoned. We are held in sin's control. 
And the law shows us that that's the case, that we're under the power of sin. It convicts us of our situation, shows us the situation that we are really in before God apart from grace. And we need the law to do that. We need to understand how desperately trapped we are in sin if the gospel is to make any sense to us. We need to be convinced that on account of our sinfulness, we're in a much more desperate situation than we thought. I mean, apart from having an understanding of our sin and and God's wrath against our sin, there's just no real reason to become a Christian and just go on with your merry life. If If sin is not really a problem and the consequences of sin, like eternal damnation, aren't looming on the horizon, what's the point of the gospel? It makes no sense if we don't understand this. But, when we honestly and accurately measure ourselves against God's law, the only appropriate conclusion is that in our current state, we are not doing very well. Utterly unacceptable to God, totally deserving of his punishment. I mean, when we read Christ teaching in the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, that anger is just as damning as murder, and that a lustful thought is just as damning as committing adultery. That should not make us feel good about how we're doing. That should humble us. When we read the Ten Commandments, we shouldn't be like, man, I'm doing pretty good. I mean, I got like, you know, six out of ten. That's a passing grade. The Ten Commandments are not there to make you feel good about yourself. Ten Commandments are there to help us feel guilty and in need of grace and forgiveness. We just naturally give ourselves too much credit. We don't think we're as bad as we really are, or at least we're not as bad as somebody else. That's just good old self-righteousness, and we need to honestly acknowledge our self-righteousness in order for the gospel to land on our hearts with power. The law is designed to help us with that project in our hearts. Listen to how the German reformer Martin Luther explains how the law helps lead us away from our self-righteousness. This is, this, is, this is a good one. As long as a person is not a murderer, adulterer, or thief, he would swear that he's righteous. Okay, now I've had so many conversations with people who are just like, I'm a pretty good person. Like, I haven't done that much bad stuff, and I try really hard. That's exactly, he's talking to that person. As long as a person is not a murderer, adulterer, or thief, he would swear that he's righteous. How's God going to humble such a person except by the law? The law, and this is very vivid here, the law is the hammer of death, the thunder of hell, and the lightning of God's wrath to bring down the proud. As long as a person thinks he is righteous, he is going to be incomprehensibly proud and presumptuous. He is going to hate God despise his grace and mercy, and ignore the promises in Christ. That's how dangerous self-righteousness is. This monster, he finishes, of self-righteousness, this stiff-necked beast, needs a big axe. And that's what the law is, a big axe. The law is an axe that we can use to lay to the root of our self-righteousness. Like I said, God never intended for for us to use the law to feel good about ourselves, but he did intend for the law to humble us and steer us away from self-righteousness. 
He intended for the law to show us how bad we are so that we would run to him for grace and help. And so what that means for us is that we shouldn't disregard God's law. It's not like because the law doesn't justify us, it's of no use to us. Oh, not at all, my friends. We should eagerly study God's law. We should get more familiar with his righteous requirements as we progress in the faith. We should rejoice in his righteous requirements and thank him for them. Uh, there's a, the longest chapter in the Bible is just that, Psalm 119. Because his law helps us understand the sinfulness of sin. And to the degree that we understand the sinfulness of our sin, to that degree, we will appreciate the salvation of our Savior. Look, if you, if you aren't a Christian and you wonder why on earth Christians are so hopped up on Jesus and the gospel and why they keep talking about it and why they keep singing about his blood, which is just weird, right? If you want to understand it, you've got to start by studying the law. What does God require of people? Have they met his requirements? What does he require of me? Have I met those requirements? If you study that long enough, you will come to understand that nobody has. Nobody except Christ, that is. But none of us have. We've all been monumentally unfaithful toward God, and yet, this is why Christians sing, we've been monumentally unfaithful toward God, and yet we aren't doomed. We don't have to fear punishment or retribution on account of the gospel. That's why the gospel is so precious to us. That's why Christians are so thrilled about Jesus and his gospel. You want to understand that? Study the law. The law helps us by humbling us. It helps us see our need for salvation by grace alone, which is the only way we will get saved. For salvation by our efforts will never work. The law exposes our sinfulness, point number one. Point number two, the law guarded us temporarily. The law guarded us temporarily. And there is a bit of asymmetry here from the first point. Now we're going to talk about something the law did that it no longer does. He teaches that it's temporary at multiple points in this passage. Verse 19, he said it was added. Okay, the first indication that he's going to say that it's temporary. Then in verse 23, he writes, you can look there. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. There was a time when this imprisonment would end until this other thing happened. It was keeping faithful Jews captive until the age of faith in Christ dawned. And he shows it again, verse 24, 25. So then, he writes, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. The age of the law is over. Christ has come, and the role that the law played in the lives of Old Testament believers is completed, satisfied. This means that believers on this side of Christ's coming have a different relationship to the law than the believers who lived before he came. Paul uses two different analogies to illustrate the role that the law had before the coming of Christ. First way, he says, we were held captive in verse 23. And that means that believers in the Old Covenant were under the power and control of the law. 
It was a prison guard, and they were its prisoners. It imprisoned them. And if that sounds like a negative picture to you, it is. <laughs> he wants us to feel that it's not a good situation to be in. To be imprisoned by the law is not preferable, very unpleasant. But for a time, God intentionally imprisoned his people under the law. He restricted and restrained them by making them feel the burden of its requirements. God was teaching them to long to be liberated from it. It sounds kind of brutal, but as Paul draws out again and again, it was part of God's plan to point them toward faith in Christ when he finally arrived. I mean, I just imagine you've been trying so hard to keep God's law and failing over and over again and realizing you can't. And then Christ comes and God says, good news. You don't have to keep my law in order to be justified. Just believe in my son and you, by believing in him, will fulfill the requirements of my law. Well, that would be music to your ears if you've been trying so hard and getting nowhere. That offer is so appealing because you felt the burden and the restrictions and the imprisonment of the law. So that's the first illustration. First analogy, imprisonment. And the second one is guardianship. Now he changes analogies here right in the middle of, uh, of this section. Guardian does not mean prison guard. Okay, not what you would use to describe a prison guard. This is a word used to describe somebody who supervises or watches over somebody else. It's not as, not as harsh in connotation as the imprisonment analogy. And in first century Greco-Roman culture, a guardian was usually, usually uh, a high-ranking household slave that watched over the children, made sure they got to and from school, made sure they ate their, I don't know, ate their vegetables, and basically just kind of made sure that the kids stayed in line. Sort of like a live-in nanny. That's basic, the closest, closest analogy that I have for. Sort of like a living nanny. Paul pivots to that analogy in verse 24 and 25 to say something a little different than imprisonment. He's filling this out. The law was supervising God's people for a time, teaching them how to live, warning them when they got out of line, keeping them from getting into too much trouble. And you could argue it didn't do a very good job because God's people in the Old Testament got in a ton of trouble. The law had a certain kind of power and influence. The law could tell you that what you were doing was wrong, but it can't make you want to do what's right. It can teach you, but it can't change you. Okay? It can convict you, but can't convert you. Those are things only faith can do. So Paul writes in verse 25, now that faith has come. We, speaking to fellow Jews, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Faith in Christ. Here we are again, my friends. Faith in Christ can do what the law never could. Here we are talking about what the law is supposed to do, and we're still going to end up talking about what it can't do. Paul can't get off of that 
need to expose that. As one scholar wrote, the law, God's good and holy law, is in itself impotent to rescue fallen human beings from their sinful state and the wrath that sin brings in its wake. It is the coming of faith that ends this situation. Faith in Christ can free you. Faith in Christ can forgive you. Faith in Christ can transform you so that you actually want to obey God's law. Faith can help you understand that when you fail to obey God's law, you are absolutely forgiven on account of what Christ did on the cross. Faith can give you eyes to see God's law as good instructions from a loving father rather than the cruel requirements of a divine tyrant. The law can't do any of that. And we shouldn't expect it to. One of the law's jobs, we have to understand this from this passage, one of the law's jobs is completely finished. It's no longer a prison guard keeping God's people in jail and making them long to be liberated. It's no longer a guardian keeping them in line. Now, now we have what was promised. What was promised? Union with Christ through faith. And I'm not going to go into it much because we're going to get to it in the coming chapter. But the Spirit now comes center stage and does everything that the law was doing, but way better. We have union with Christ through faith. Now that faith is here, the law no longer holds us captive or guards us, and we need to make sure that we don't expect the law to do that. This is where the rubber meets the road. We, we don't, and we could, but we don't want to go back underneath the law. We don't. We don't want to make our relationship with God all about how well we're keeping his law, some kind of scorecard, right? Like we saw earlier, the law can helpfully reveal our sin to us, and it should, but, but the law is of no use to us in sustaining or nurturing our relationship with God, for faith does what the law was never designed to do. Faith secures for us the righteousness that the law requires, the righteousness of Christ himself. Faith gives us a right standing with God. Faith makes us sons of God. It's faith in Christ that gives us new hearts, new status, new hope. We are people of faith in Christ, not people of the law. And we should not put ourselves back underneath the law in the way that Paul's opponents in Galatians, in Galatia were saying we should. We are people of faith, not people of the law. The law's temporary purpose is complete. Point number three. The law points us to the promise. The law points us to the promise. Final few verses of Galatians chapter 3 are iconic. Some would say this is the summary of the whole letter or the high point of Paul's argument. As we look at these last few verses, we need to remember the occasion for Paul's writing. Why is he writing this letter? There was conflict in the Galatian church. Remember, Jewish believers insisting that non-Jewish believers must obey the law by being circumcised and observing certain dietary laws and feast days. And if they didn't, They were saying they were either second-class Christians or not Christians at all. That's what Paul is railing against. That's why he's going to push us here into a beautiful, sweeping statement about the unity that Christians share 
through their common faith in Christ, not their common keeping of the law. Look again with me, verses 25, 26. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all, men, women, children, you are all sons of God through faith. Through faith in Jesus Christ, the Jew, the Gentile, and anybody else becomes a son of God. In other words, something better than merely a son of Abraham. A son of God, the same status as Jesus Christ who is the son of God, a co-heir with him even. We no longer need a guardian because we're adult sons with all the privileges and responsibilities that come with that new status. That's part of Paul's argument. The law plays no part in securing that for us. We access it by faith alone. Verse 27, 4, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Okay, another analogy here. Pivots again. Here he's using the symbolism of baptism to depict what happens spiritually to the person who has saving faith. Just like you're submerged in the waters of baptism, faith submerges you completely into Christ. You become one with him. Everything he has is now yours, including his record of perfect law-keeping. It was a common custom early on in the church to hand a newly baptized convert a, a white robe to put on immediately after their baptism. Paul certainly alluding to that practice here, the way he writes the sentence. The white robe symbolized the righteousness of Christ. You put on Christ by faith, and now you are robed in his righteousness. His righteousness is credited to you. You possess now. Through faith in Christ, the righteousness that God's law requires, even though you know you're not practicing it. You don't have to strive to keep the law in order to become righteous before God. He counts you as righteous before you act like it. Simply by faith in Christ. We have a righteous status, even though there's still much unrighteousness in our hearts and lives. So verse 28, if you've been baptized into Christ, verse 28, now there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There are a couple of other places in Paul's letters where he writes nearly the same thing. What's notable about verse 28 here, as opposed to those other places, is the inclusion of no male and female. And of course, people have puzzled. Why on earth does he add that into this one? The most likely reason is because of his opponent's focus on circumcision. And I know by now you're tired of hearing us talk about circumcision. But it's relevant he includes no male and female because he wants it to be crystal clear that it is not circumcision, which was only performed on males, that makes you a son of Abraham. Circumcision isn't required. A woman can be just as justified as a man. Therefore, it can't have anything to do with circumcision. We are all one in Christ Jesus. As, as one scholar wrote, Christ is a corporate person. A person made up of many people. 
He's the head and we are his body. This gets, this gets drawn out in all kinds of ways in the New Testament. Christ is a corporate person and we join him, become one with him by faith and therefore he shares everything he is with us. And that means that by faith in Christ, the distinctions between us cease to matter as they pertain to our standing with God. Now that's important. I'm going to say it again. The distinctions between us cease to matter as they pertain to our standing with God. This verse does not mean, as some have wrongly construed, that the distinctions between us cease to exist entirely or that they don't matter. No, our, our nationalities, our social standings, our gender distinctions matter. They exist and they matter. In fact, they're all ordained by God. But those distinctions have no bearing on our status with God. Jews aren't more privileged than Greeks. Americans aren't more privileged than Canadians. Well, we are in some ways. But not as it pertains to our status with God. Rich aren't more privileged than poor. CEOs aren't more privileged than janitors. Men aren't more privileged than women. For we are all sons of God by faith in Jesus Christ. It is faith in Jesus Christ that confers this status upon us. We share the same spiritual status even while our earthly circumstances and callings are different. This, this means that every member in the church has an incredible dignity. That's what, that, there's all kinds of things that, that are, are contained in this image of sonship, and they're going to they're gonna come out as we keep going. So I'm going to save those for you in the coming weeks. But all kinds of things. We, we share in the same status. We share the same dignified status before God, not because we've been great people, but because we have a very gracious God. We are all sons of God by grace through faith. That is worth celebrating. That is worth repeating. That is worth remembering. We all share the same status and therefore receive the same inheritance. We are all forgiven and cleansed from sin. We are all robed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus. Remembering that and cherishing that protects us from the infighting, squabbling, judgmentalism, and cliquishness that so often characterizes the world and the church. We degenerate into infighting when we lose sight of that one sentence that we are all sons of God by faith. That sentence has the power to protect us from all kinds of sins and mistakes. We're all one in Christ. None of us earned it. None of us figured it out or cracked the code. We are simply sons of God by grace through faith in the Son of God. Final verse, verse 29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. This third point here in the sermon is that the law points us to the promise. And there it is, the pointy end of the spear right at the end. That is the law, it's the law's great and ultimate purpose. The law makes you 
look back to the promise and say, it can't be about the law. It must be about what God has promised. God must fulfill his promise even in light of my law-breaking. And the law points us to the focus of the promise, to Jesus himself. Remember, Paul's opponents said that it was law-keeping that made you Abraham's offspring. Paul says, no way. It's faith in Christ that makes you Abraham's offspring. I mean, his logic is so tight here. Christ is the promised offspring of Abraham. That's what he said earlier in the chapter. Christ is the promised offspring of Abraham. And if you believe in him, you are one with him and are therefore a son of Abraham too because that's what he is. The law and the great purpose of the law, the simplest way to describe Galatians 3, 19 through 29 is this. The law leads us to faith in Christ. That is what it's designed to do. The law is designed to lead you to put your faith in Jesus Christ. By exposing to us our sinfulness and our need for a Savior, the law leads us to Christ. By showing us that we can't perfectly keep the law in the way God requires, the law leads us to Christ. By proving to us that we don't deserve the blessings for obedience promised by the law, and instead we deserve the curses promised for those who don't keep the law, the law leads us to Christ. By trapping us in the bondage of sin and making us feel our need for a great Savior to come and liberate us from sin and judgment, the law leads us to Christ. The law leads us to put our faith in the one who did do everything the law required and who surprisingly took on the status we deserved so that we could have the status he deserved. He was punished by God as a criminal, a lawbreaker, so that you and I could skip out of the courtroom with no fear of punishment. He was treated by God as a rebel instead of a son so that we could become sons of God, though we were the rebels. He was cut off from God and God's people so that we could be grafted in. Those are the accomplishments of his cross, and we partake in them simply by... It sounds so ridiculous. We partake in those just simply by receiving them as true. Let me end with one simple application. Let us be, Sovereign Grace Church, careful. Let's be careful not to let the law spoil our relationship with other Christians. That would be one way to describe the problem in Galatia. The law was spoiling the relationship between other Christians. Paul's very concerned about their unity. So let, let's take that to heart. Don't let the law spoil your relationship with other Christians. Don't look down on other Christians because they don't dress like you or talk like you or parent like you or, or sing songs like you do or use the same annoying Christian catchphrases that you do. Don't look down on other churches 
This is a temptation. It's an easy one to, it's a respectable sin, if you've read that book from Jerry Bridges, a great book. A respectable sin to kind of subtly look down on other churches because they don't worship like us, or they don't share every finer point of our theology, or they don't seem to be joyful, generous, ordinary neighbors. I mean, what's wrong with all those other churches? Get with the program, right? We may not have a prominent, obvious problem with self-righteousness at the moment, but remember what I said earlier. We can easily drift into it. We could drift into self-righteousness. Let's resist that drift by rejoicing together in the status that we all share with all people who believe in Christ. We are all inheritors of the promise to Abraham, all forgiven and free, all on our way to eternal life, all sons of God. How? By faith in Christ alone, and by nothing that we have done. Remember that. Repeat it. Rejoice in it. And our life together will be very sweet. Let me pray that it would. Lord, thank you that you have not treated us as our sins deserve. We do have a status with you that could never be earned. We do not deserve to be your sons. We do not deserve to receive the promises given to Abraham. We do not deserve eternal life or even the, the comfort that our consciences feel right now as we remember what Jesus did for us on the cross, the relief that we have at our forgiveness of sins. We don't deserve to feel that. And yet, you have given it to us anyway because you are a gracious and merciful God and you have done it to magnify the glory of your grace as the watching world watches you save a sinful people from their sins. Lord, I pray that that would humble us and so that at this church, we would not look down on one another. Rather, our posture would be one of just delight in each other. That by faith in Christ alone, we all share this wonderful status. I pray that our church would have full hearts towards one another not because we're the best Christians on the planet, not because we figured it out, but simply because you have been so good to us. Oh, I pray that that would be our impulse and the posture of our hearts. Help us to love one another well because you have been so gracious to us. Oh, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.